Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. Maybe we should get Abby to do that live every time the show starts. That would be really great. Yeah. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Filament Games Podcast. I'm slightly ill. Yeah, Brandon's sick, and we're making him do it anyway, because we haven't recorded for a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. We've done the live release since then of, the, of the podcast. And, we did. And we're all just ridiculously amped. So yeah, Brandon's was... still able to make sentences, um, but I, I, I want to put a disclaimer out here. There's going to be snurfing sounds to, on this podcast. That That is the technical medical yes, term. Yes, and uh, we're not going to edit them all out if they're in the way of hearing an amazing thing that Brandon has to share. <laughs> like we're we're gonna we're gonna deal with the snurfing. So today we're gonna talk about a few things. Um, we're gonna talk about industry takeaways from FETC and BETT, which are acronyms I will explain later. All right. That's where I've been for the last two weeks, which is why we haven't been recording mm-hmm. in Orlando and London, respectively. Um, and then we will also talk about uh, games, game-based learning, gamification, the differences, the subtleties between those different genres of gaming content, the learning sub- game content. Subtleties. The, su- the subtleties. Yes. And then we'll talk about uh, strategies behind where each of those things is most appropriate. Mm-hmm. So to kick it off, let's talk about FETC. Okay. Brandon, what the hell is that? (laughs) It is the Florida Educational Technology Conference, not to be confused with the Florida Educational Technology Conference. Actually, the Future of Education Technology Conference, I think it used to be Florida, but I think they're trying to rebrand to become a more global or at least national operator. It's, uh, again, an educational technology conference. Um, We were there actually uh, in a booth that was graciously sponsored by the National Science Foundation mm-hmm. uh, because we had applied to a number of their uh, what are called SBIR programs in the past and funded development work of some of our games. And so, of course, we were there to showcase those games. Ooh, Brandon, what's SBIR stand for? It stands for Small Business Innovation Research. I know that one. All right. That one is not a mystery to All me. Right. And that's a, a great program provided by um, a variety of government agencies where you can essentially propose an innovative project around that something that's relevant to that agency. So uh, for the National Science Foundation, we, of course, proposed making some science content that would you know, be delivered through games and would uh, target very specific science learning objectives. So that's what we were there to talk about. Mm. It was a really great show. Uh, we talked to primarily educators. It's a show that's really attended by the administrative and the teacher level uh, professionals in the education world. Uh, So there's very little kind of other game developers there. Um, We're kind of more, I guess, the main representation of that. Uh, There wasn't a lot there. Um, But yeah, uh, we we had a lot of good conversations and and it was very enjoyable and and somewhat warm. We were kind of like the cool kids. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Way, way, way in the back of right. the room, which is where the cool kids always sit. That's of right. <laughs> Slouching. <laughs> yeah. Flipping a coin. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or playing with a yo-yo of some yeah. kind. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why my definition of cool ended in like the 1950s, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> those are my benchmarks. And then from there, we went to uh, London, which was uh, the BETT 
Conference that stands for the British Educational Training and Technology Conference. It's not a television channel that just does documentaries about BET? Exactly. Okay. No, it was, right. in fact, a, a conference right. at, at, in London. All right. And so uh, it's huge. It's absolutely massive. I think the only show uh, stateside that approaches it would be ISTE, which is International Society for Technology and Education Man, Conference. Man, you're killing it today. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm drowning in a sea of acronyms right now. Uh, ISTE draws about... 14, 15,000 people. BET, as it's colloquially known, is probably closer to 30,000 attendees, uh, representatives from countries, I mean, over 100 countries, which, you know, of course, added some challenge to working in the booth because not only are we pitching uh, an innovative product, we're also pitching it to people for whom the language barrier might be fairly considerable. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, for those folks from the UK, obviously the conversations were fairly smooth, but then there are representatives from Turkey and uh, China and Malaysia and Singapore, all kinds of uh, these different regions where, of course, English might be a second language. And so that was that was uh, an extra challenge. But we had a lot of really cool conversations. And for me, it was most exciting to see how education uh, takes different or, or, you know, manifests as an institution mm-hmm. in such v- a variety of ways across national cultures. Hmm. So, there, uh, you know, every country structures it differently and that was really what was the most valuable thing was talking to people who kind of live and breathe in these unique systems and uh, gaining the insights that they had in terms of approaching those systems with with learning game content and how learning games can help. Interesting. Were there any particular countries that were ahead or behind or thinking about games and learning in a different way? Yeah, I felt that, um, you know, I'm going to specifically the folks that I was talking to from Singapore were really excited about the idea of using technology in the classroom. There's, if you, if you've ever been to one of these shows, you'll know that it's flooded with hardware that of course our content can fit relatively easily into. So Mm -hmm. there's smart boards, which are these kind of huge whiteboard platforms that are, that offer kind of an interactive, uh, capacity to a teacher where it's, it's like a whiteboard that they can animate, they can drag. It's basically a gigantic touchscreen on the wall Manufacturers like Smart, uh, which is the leading smartboard manufacturer, and Promethean, which I believe is uh, just the the runner-up there. Um, these guys are building these ecosystems of digital content into their smartboards, and so you know there's a lot of new kind of avenues opening up for digital content to make their way into the classroom. And I know those those platforms are strongly adopted uh, in in particularly in the Asian markets. Hmm. Yeah, so that was cool too. And then, of course, I think the coolest thing I was seeing there is, um, you know, there's a lot of programmable robotic kits and 3D printers and these kind of hardware platforms that create a space for project-based learning and really hands-on, hypothesis-driven, experimental styles of learning, Mm -hmm. which is really exciting to me, of course, because that, I feel, is a way that will equip students for the 21st century and success beyond operating in a classroom structure, at least in this country, that was very much developed, you know, during the Industrial Revolution right. and is, uh, you know, in some ways antiquated. So, right. so yeah, that was particularly exciting to me to see those kind of innovative projects really, really kind of taking, uh, you know, becoming entrenched mm-hmm. and becoming 
more of a staple than sort of an outlier niche kind of product or offering that you'd see in the space a few years ago. What were people talking about in terms of 3D printing in in classrooms? Because, you know, I I've wanted a 3D printer for yeah, me too years now. But <laughs> then when I start running the scenarios of what happens once I get one, I'll be like, well, I'll make a keychain <laughs> for starters, <laughs> and make your own, your own Pokemon doodads or something. Right? Yeah. yeah. Then it, then it quickly tapers off. Like so, I I mean, I bought a a really nice looking like chibi robo uh, amiibo those little teeny sculptures Nintendo sculptures that sure. plug into the game sure. bought one of those for six dollars yesterday nice uh, and, that's reasonable right and if I were to buy a 3D printer I could make a vastly subpar version of that for <laughs> aside from the let's call it four hundred dollars for the original printer outlay yeah and then another few dollars for the plastic and then if I want to charge my time for figuring out how to make it work, I mean, I'm just getting kind of intense. Right. So like, I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm interested in what, what are the types of things that people are doing in 3D printing in classrooms? Because I, I feel like a lot of the time 3D printing's still a little bit early in terms of like delivering the dream. Yeah, it's, you know, there's definitely, there's an element of it where it's it's sort of a novelty. Mm-hmm. But what I've seen, there there's some kind of vendors out there that are offering sort of an end-to-end kind of modeling experience. So what I mean by that is they will actually, you can kind of make a CAD style drawing of a thing, mm-hmm. you know, like a maybe it's like you're just making a small race car. Mm-hmm. And so you, you'll have this software where you can generate the model of it. You can make predictions about how it will behave, you know, given okay. certain physical contexts, and then you can actually make it and assemble it and test those hypotheses. Um, in a physical setting. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so there's one I saw. Um, this was actually at a different show, um, whose acronym escapes me, but it was basically that. It was they they had um, it was end to end where they basically was like this is a a laboratory that lets you engineer things on a micro scale, mm-hmm. and then you can actually use a 3D printer to make those things and operate in in a, in a physical environment with them. Nice. Yeah. So I think you're right, though. I think the technology needs to probably be refined before it can become mainstream in mm-hmm. the classroom. Uh, but if you're looking to get your students involved in a project-based learning model that will really engage them, I think the novelty and the I think the uniqueness of being able to take something from the digital world into the physical realm, sure, end to end, in you know, w- with with your own kind of your own agency, I think that's really compelling. That's an interesting topic, kind of on a larger sense, Brandon, like novelty. Yeah. Newness. Yes. A thing that has value simply because it was not the thing that was before it. (laughs) That's obviously in our industry, that's something that we struggle with and then also occasionally are empowered by. Absolutely. And it's sort of hard to say in terms of, uh, if you're talking about like the spark of people becoming excited to think about a problem, that feeling like this is something worth engaging in. Like novelty is really important. I would agree with that. And I think it is important insofar as it's aligned with sort of the the headwinds of the industry and and kind of where pedagogy is going. Mm -hmm. So you've got 
these initiatives where teachers are trying to develop those 21st century skills, those intangible skills like critical thinking, discussion, and uh, you know technical literacy, and all of these novel approaches align with that really nicely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, I would make the argument that a smart board would be a superior intervention to just a plain analog whiteboard, which is essentially there to be a dry erase surface, mm-hmm. simply because it's also, it's delivering content while training students how to use a complex piece of technology. Mm-hmm. And when they actually emerge from the cocoon that is the school world and they're in the professional space, they need to have that technological literacy. There is some definite like meta level, not even just like, oh, you need to know how to use these pieces of tech, but you need to have like a a philosophy of being able to see an interaction inside a software or hardware or or a new object that does a thing that didn't exist a month ago. Exactly. And being able to be like, okay, well, and that's, you know, that's the thing. It's like user interface itself is sort of a literacy, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you've never sat down in front of a word processor, that's it's like learning a completely new language. If you used to use Microsoft Word 9 versus 10, you're mm-hmm. going to basically know <laughs> what you're going to be met with in that case. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's it's that kind of, there's there's direct and then indirect learning going on simultaneously. And that's that's kind of why ed tech is so crucial. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I get the sensation that, like, new is new is lazy, mm. right? You're like, well, it's not good, but it's new. Right. Right? And I think especially if you're talking about, like, a even sliding down to, like, an individual's level of thinking about becoming good at something and learning something, right? Like, right out of the gate, everything's new. So everything feels like an exciting piece of challenge. And then as you get better and better at it, like newness becomes harder to find right like it's not hard to find movie critics or foodies etc that you know unless it's some endangered species filet <laughs> that's been prepared <laughs> the liver of an endangered fish right unless unless the thing <laughs> itself is has some element of newness it's hard for them to even really critically engage with it they're the, like well, unless the- this is describing some crazy arcane way of me to rethink about this space. I have no interest. They've been numbed. Yeah. And the other side, yeah, I think I think about this with like children's cartoons. Like mm. when we were young roustabouts, we would watch Saturday morning cartoons and they were the best thing ever. Right. Now when I see those cartoons, wow, they were terrible. Oh yeah. They were advertisements. Yes. For but, action figures. <laughs> uh <laughs> My love of that feeling of newness of seeing those animated worlds and things is now, now, now cartoons are good. Cartoons for kids have become good because I think lots of people like myself watch those cartoons, had those instilled in us as an incredibly exciting thing to see, and then then have come back and brought another layer of standards and quality onto making something that actually lives up to your childhood expectations. I wish I watched more cartoons. 
to be honest because it's not too late brandon it's not too late <laughs> because because we're we're just living in a golden age of television in general but if you get me started on that we will not talk about anything else today okay right. you're a sick man i won't push you too far uh so you know speaking of trends trends in education in education trend- <laughs> oh I almost pushed those two words together. Trends, trend, trend, trendications. Yeah. Speaking of trendumications. Yeah. Let's not. I'm going to stop doing that for a little while, I think. Because I realized after listening to some of our podcasts, I just mush words together all the time. Sound just like a, just a little drunk always. <laughs> yeah. For my own entertainment, I really like mushing words together and uh, <laughs> I should have some discipline over it. <laughs> I should only do it when in the be- it benefits the world. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of just carte blanche like yeah. a, like an oh. absolute madman. Yeah. Trendication. All right. So the trends. The trends. Games. Games. Game based learning. Game based learning. And gamification. That one too. What are the <laughs> what are the differences? So I would like to first shout out uh gamesandlearning.org because uh a while back they put out an infographic that actually is a really nice distillation of the sort of divisions between these, I don't know, genres, I guess you could call them. And uh, they put that out October 1st, and you can check it out at their wonderful website. Again, that's gamesandlearning.org. It provides that distinction, which is very crucial, because I know that when I'm, you know, when I'm at shows like FETC or BET, uh, those terms are used completely interchangeably. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... This is, uh, for filament at least, a very, uh, you know, it's an existential issue because what we really specialize in is game-based learning. Mm-hmm. And we think that as a teaching tool, that's probably the optimal path mm-hmm. for games. Uh, that isn't to say that gamification has no place. Mm-hmm. It can be useful in certain contexts. And, and of course, we've, we've done gamification projects before. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not as if we're... I guess, philosophically opposed to that. It's just very important to understand the difference. So uh, with a game, it's a set of rules, it's a system, it's, it's objectives, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a play space. There's lots of different ways you could define it, mm-hmm. but any, most people have a general sense of what it is to be playing a game. Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the objective is generally to be entertained. And I think that could be a unifying definition I got an arched eyebrow over here. I see that, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of games. If you watched video footage of many people playing games, games that they love, you will see things like rage, depression, <laughs> uh, despair. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that don't really look like what you'd normally... I don't know. I guess it depends on how big of an umbrella you want to use the word well, entertained. So now, yeah, I was going to say, now we're just actually, what is entertainment? Right. Is we're it entertaining to be yeah. furious? Yeah. Well, entertaining means, you know, Something that's, uh, it's like playing a game, for example. <laughs> for example, let's say. Yes. Yes. That's all the time we have. Thanks, everyone. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wandered into a semantic quagmire. Yeah. No, actually, I did <laughs> like. no return. I liked your anatomy of a game list in terms of uh, systems and interactions, et cetera. I'm not, uh, entertaining is one of those words that can slide into sounding like a trivializing word. That's and, true. That's you know, very true. And, and I think the big shift in thinking that we're an advocate for is that a game does not need to be made for the its purpose is to entertain. That, that that's the only reason to exist. We certainly you can make games for goals beyond 
we hope someone doesn't wander off in the middle of doing this thing. Like we can do, uh, we're, we're, you know, film and lots of other organizations are trying to make games that have an impact beyond the, the moment of play. And so those goals go beyond whether or not you were entertained. That's a fair point. I think that's a very fair point. And I can think of even games that are ostensibly entertainment games. An easy example would, of course, be like the Stanley Parable. Mm-hmm. That's a game that, you know, if there, I, I stood in a broom closet for like 10 minutes. I know. Yes. <laughs> and, and I kept getting new outcomes from yes. that. And so that wasn't necessarily entertainment, but it, it taught me something. Yes. <laughs> I learned about player agency and the way that, you know the, a lot of the, that game's point is about the illusion of agency that games create. Yes. Uh, so you know, I definitely that that game had a significant impact in how I view games. Yeah, and I was, yeah, I was gonna say because yeah, not only do lots of things happen inside Stanley Parable that do not look like fun, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, at least part of the value, a huge part of the value of that game is that. Yeah, how much it challenges your thinking about games in general. So it's a wonderful game about games in that sense. As you engage with that game as a player, you, regardless of where you're on the spectrum of like meeting or subverting game-based goals, you're just not sure how. You can't tell whether or not doing what this narrator tells you to do is that a subversive act or not? Right. right? It, it, and it it completely does a wonderful job exposing that strange relationship between you, a narrator, and a narrative. Right. And it also does a wonderful job exposing a narrator as character and mm-hmm. what that really and that there is a relationship there. Well, and it's it's playing with your expectations, and it's you know, I spoke earlier about the idea that there's a certain literacy when you're interacting with technology. There's certainly a literacy when you're engaging with a game like that. You know, you're in a first-person environment. You have certain expectations about what the forward path might be. Right. And it's just screwing with you the entire time. That's yes. yeah, an amazing <laughs> game. But we should wind back over to gamification. Yes, absolutely. So the, the, the more important distinction, or the more subtle distinction, I think, here is between game-based learning and gamification. So the way that I would define... Personally, I'm uh-huh. not going to wander into the generalities <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Keep your eyebrow under control. All right, eyebrows are locked down. <laughs> um, the way that I view gamification is taking something that's not necessarily a game and applying a patina of game Ooh. gaminess to it. An, uh, an oil rub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. A veneer. A veneer. Uh, oh, that's a good word. So you've got you've got badging or goal setting or achievements, some sort of motivational structure, mm-hmm. and maybe a leaderboard. So there's some kind of comp- competitive edge mm-hmm. that's applied to something that isn't traditionally a game. Um, I think you know an example of that would be something uh, you know maybe the cool choices project would be kind of a fair example of mm-hmm. something that is sort of it, i mean it's still game based learning it kind of blurs the line between these two disciplines in a, it, a bit um oh, actually it might, might be a great one to explore cuz it is a hybrid of gamification strategies with a game based learning strategy so it's just so uh just to catch folks up on that that's a project that we did with a really uh a really cool organization called Cool Choices. Mm-hmm. They're so cool that cool's in the name. Exactly. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we love those guys. Yeah, they create community-wide, collaborative, energy-saving strategy games. 
Yes. Basically. Mm-hmm. So they have a web-based platform in which you can create teams as a community, and that community can be a company or it can be a city. It can be all sorts of things. And each of those teams, uh, each member now can log into the site every day and they can see a collection of cards. And those cards contain different point values for enacting different types of energy-saving strategies. And you can choose from those cards, though, the ones that you're going to get accomplished and done that day uh, and uh, score points for your team. And then you're working together in this collaborative competitive structure. It's, it's, so it's, it's very nice. So what parts of that are gamification? Like maybe the easiest way for like me to separate, in my head at least, gamification versus game-based learning strategies is that gamification takes all the pieces of games that are content agnostic and uses those. So things exactly like your listing branded points, uh, leaderboards, uh, all those types of reward structures, badges and achievements, all those things that are content agnostic. There's like you could apply those to anything. Any of those strategies can be used over and over and over as a positive feedback wrapper around anything, right? Just about anything really. Mm-hmm. because they they aren't directly related to the thing that you want people to do. You can give someone points for having a cold. <laughs> Congratulations, Brandon. You get 10 points today. I've got the high score. You're, yeah, you're winning. And uh, you could give someone points for being late to work. I got 10 points today. <laughs> so uh, those strategies can be used over and over. So obviously there's a lot of power there, right? Because you can think about how to deliver those types of feedback in effective ways that where people people want those points, they have ways to share and feel good about them. The achievements can be well laid out and properly structured and the badges can be artfully done. And so like there's lots of ways to be good at those things, but still be able to pick up and move those strategies from thing to thing. Game-based learning is more about, you know, the things we've been talking about in this podcast a lot. Like what are the ways to take learning content and turn it into gameplay mechanics. Mm-hmm. Like how can we make a game that's about doing those things? So Cool Choices has kind of got both, right? Like they And they have a loose wrapper on the, on the content part, right? Because they, they ask you to do these things. And in that sense, they don't get into the nitty-gritty of like a game-based learning approach about how to do those things well. But it is a game-based learning approach to create habits. Like mm-hmm. we're actually getting you to use a system of being like, you're going to be conscientious. You're going to think about this and you're going to do it right. daily. Right. So you're creating practice and you're creating habits around just thinking about energy saving choices. And then of course we're exposing you to the content of very particular savvy energy choices and what their benefits and pros and cons are. So, so it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think that there's like in this instance, there's a subtlety in that, you know, with, with a purely game-based learning approach, in some ways you are abstracting the habits that you're looking to build mm-hmm. into some kind of representation of that, some sim- you know, simulation or a model or a virtualized version of it. But what's cool about this, is, <laughs> what's cool about it, is that it's actually you're doing those things in real time, in, in real life, mm-hmm. and, and then building that back into the game-based learning structure of mm-hmm. the program. Mm-hmm. So that's... I think that's another distinction where this one's sort of a hybrid product or project, I mm-hmm. should say. Um, but yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about you know what we think of as a pure game-based learning 
genre or initiative? What, what does that look like to you? You know, actually, I might actually divide it less than like less than that. There's like these two buckets, and something falls into both. I think maybe the the nicest way to think of it is that gamification is a subset of the game-based learning strategies. Mm-hmm. In particular, it's the strategies that are uh, not content-specific. Sure. So they're the most reusable and flexible and redeployable things in the game design toolbox that you could use over and over and over in a wide variety of things, right? So right. I was playing Diablo last night, right? And mm-hmm. there's a... Getting those purples. Getting some getting some legendaries, man. Oh, oranges. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they're orange. Yeah, it's a whole other, whole other world. <laughs> totally different, Brandon. <laughs> um, but, you know, so in that game, as you're, like, destroying uh, little demons, at a certain point, I think if you kill 15 or 20, a little thing pops up. It's like, hey, you killed 15 of these things. Now you killed 16, 17, and now there's a little a little rope burns down to like encourage you to keep the killing going. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the longer you can do that and the more things you can kill on a sequence, you know, yeah. the, the bigger your ultimate bonus is. That's a that's a gamification strategy, right? I see. Right? Sure. That's, that's like, oh, well, let's, uh, let's attach uh, a quantifying counting thing to this act and then give your award on the other side. Right? It's like a combo in Street Fighter, basically. Right. It's like how many hits can you rack up in a row? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. It's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Right. Ten's awesome. <laughs> right. That's that's gamification strategy right there. Like maximizing the feedback for uh, a thing that is counted. Sure. Right? And and finding different ways to quantify and kind of slice that feedback mm-hmm. into into different, I guess, meta level challenges within the game itself. Right. And I I know I've. I've probably accidentally sounded super condescending about this because it is a simple mechanic, mm. uh, but it's good, right? Right. I'm like, I'm going to get to 100. I'm going to like throw my lightning hammer so it taps another creature so I can keep the streak going, right? It's, it totally works. Oh, yeah. It's very satisfying. Yeah. It's a very compelling piece. And like it's inside the giant churn of different types of design and mechanics and user experience of uh, things in there that make that game great, right? And so, so it's not bad. Uh, by any means, it's it's just that thinking, that strategy can be applied all over the place. And if you take just those types of content agnostic strategies and say like, well, let's just do that. Let's use those. Then you've got pretty much, I think, a pretty clean slide. Like that's, that's, that's gamification to me. I've never thought about it that way. But I think that's a really great way to look at it is that, you know, you're you're separating out almost the behavioral psychology that goes into how people are motivated by games, what motivates them within mm-hmm. a game, and how you can represent feedback to encourage that motivation. Mm-hmm. So so maybe that's what it is, is it's creating, it, the, the gamification aspect of it is that feedback structure for mm-hmm. the user. As a game designer, if I was talking to other designers, hello designers, don't don't sneer at the gamification strategy spectrum because those are all still very important tools to making a player understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're empowered. Like the, the like those tools are still very valid and important, and it's easy to just discount them because they're 
they're not novel or new. Oh, tie back to the earlier earlier rambling. That's good. <laughs> they're not novel or new in many ways, you but get, they're still ten, very important. You get 10 tieback points. Yeah, 10 tieback points. Ding! <laughs> um, so uh, if I were talking to consumers or sort of non-designers who are thinking about games, it's I would... I would I would then do the inverse. I'd be like, think about how play is interacting with content in a way that actually exposes the content in a it, to be meaningful. Mm. Like, what it, can the game show you? Why this information matters, not just create external tropes to 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 justify it existing. Like beyond the points. Like, is there a thing worth doing, worth knowing, worth getting better at? Those are like really important questions to evaluate whether or not you're going to have a quality experience, not just in a learning game, but in a game at all. Like, is it worth doing? Now I feel bad about talking about Diablo because that's one of those games where you're like, is this worth doing? <laughs> that has always been my but reaction. But it's so good. <laughs> I've yeah. got like... My issue is always that I'll play with my brother who's, you know, always 60 levels beyond me. So I'm just like... Right. Just kind of scampering after him, picking up loot <laughs> <laughs> while he slaughters everything. Oh, look, an extra sword. <laughs> yes. Thank you, sir. Exactly. It's yeah. It's not very empowering. Yeah. It's um, uh. But so maybe you know maybe it's that you know game based learning is is more applicable to the content that sits at the core of it, whereas gamification yeah. is is those amplification tools. Yep. There's a tension too being like the more flexible your tools, the more you can make them about anything. Or everything. But the more something's about everything, the more it's about not anything at all. But wait... It's the time. Emerging from the shadows. Yeah. <laughs> this is thrilling. Today's contronym. Yeah. Is oversight. Oversight. Oh, that's a good one. Right? <laughs> it is a good one. It yeah. Can, it can be careful, caring observation of something, yes. ensuring quality, or it could be it could be a bumble. Yes. A mistake. Wow, this actually maybe this is a you know I was kind of concerned that maybe we're going to run out of high quality contronyms. No, the the top shelf is crowded. This my is friend. good stuff. <laughs> I mean, oversight is definitely the opposite of oversight. Exactly. That's good. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's that feels like it's a healing moment, right? And I was like, is contronym corner going to like go into a slow decline? But no, we're back, baby. There's always hope. Yeah. <laughs> Oversight. Deal with it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Film and Games Podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and well-informed, accurate observations about sports and such, subscribe today on Stitcher or iTunes. Stitcher or iTunes.